I got a question for you guys. Have, have you ever had a moment, and by the way, this isn't rhetorical. I'm, I'm actually wanting a response. Have you ever had a moment when it felt like you were praying, but God wasn't listening? R- raise your hand if you've ever had that kind of moment. Okay, good. I just want to make sure. I, sometimes I fear like I'm the only person who struggles with this. Times when you're praying and you're passionate and you're asking God to move and it really feels like there's complete radio silence. Like maybe not, you know, like theologically it's not true, but practically it feels like, like God's not listening or maybe even worse, like God doesn't really care. Because if he cared, wouldn't he do something about the situation? I'm a pastor, and I know that oftentimes we come off like we have bat lines to God, and we can just any moment get on the phone and say, God, I need an answer from you. And like we have this beautiful connection that all of our prayers are answered, but that is a lie from hell itself. I pray all the time. And there are times I'm going, is this thing on? Hello, Lord, hello? Because it feels like when I pray, God's not listening. And I could tell you story after story after story of times when I've, I've been screaming, literally screaming at God, asking him if he cares. And maybe sometimes you need me to open the veil up enough to see how I am as a real human being to know I'm not the only pastor. All of us pastors have those moments. Every human being has those moments where we wonder if God cares. And I think we need to wrestle with that because unless you know that God cares, you will not live for him the way you should live for him. God wants to show us today that he cares. He's going to show us from God's word. We're going to just jump right into Exodus chapter 2. So grab your Bible and we're going to start in verse 23. We're continuing on a journey that we began just a couple of weeks ago where we're going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Exodus. We've covered two sections so far. We're going to finish up chapter 2, move into chapter 3. And what we're going to see is a people who were questioning, God, do you care? People who were groaning, crying out, wondering if God could see their misery and their suffering and their oppression. Did God care? And what we're going to learn today is that our God has never stopped caring. He never stops. He never will. He always cares. Our God is listening to us and looking at us and caring for us. We just have to open our eyes and see it. Now, before I can start in the passage, you've got to know verses 23 to 25 in chapter 2, they're a hinge point. First couple of chapters, you begin to see the scenario set up. Real quick reminder, you've got the people of God. They multiply like crazy in Egypt. And now they basically become a nation, but they're slaves in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh is scared of them, so he oppresses them. He enslaves them. He tries to murder all the, the male children born so he could keep them weak. And it's into that context that Moses is born. We heard last week how his mother, Jochebed, had to let go of Moses to trust in God's ways. And then we learned how Moses had to let go of his Egyptian identity because the first 40 years of his life, he grew up in the lap of luxury in the royal family of Egypt. And he had to learn how to let go of that Egyptian identity so he could take on a brand new identity, the identity of the rescuer of God's people. But before we hear his call, and chapter 3 will be his call into that role, you have these three verses that set the stage for that call. And they're so supremely important. So Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, they say this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now there's an interesting part of the beginning of this verse. It said that the king of Egypt died... And then the people groaned. 
Now, I know when you read Scripture, sometimes it's really easy just to keep on reading and not even contemplate the oddity of that verse. So I want you to stop and drill down into it and consider what's going on here. You would think that when the, the Pharaoh, the former king of Egypt, dies, that the people would celebrate, not groan. Because remember who this Pharaoh is. This is the Pharaoh who, were, who was oppressing the nation of Israel. He was scared. He was enslaving them. This is the Pharaoh who ordered all the male children dead. And it says that that Pharaoh dies and then the people mourn. And it makes you wonder, why would they groan when that Pharaoh dies? And here's the reason why. Very interesting point. Because the nation of Israel had put all their hope in the fact that when that Pharaoh died, things were going to get better. They put all their hope that when their circumstances changed, then they were going to have relief. When that Pharaoh dies, his oppression maybe will be lessened. He won't try to kill our babies anymore. And everything's going to be better. And that Pharaoh dies, and his son takes place, and nothing gets any better. They continue being oppressed and enslaved and mistreated, and all their hopes were dashed. And all they can do is despair, and therefore they groan because they realize their hope is lost. There's an interesting point you learn in that. And the point is, when we put our hope in the wrong place, all it can lead to is despair. This so often we do this. We, we don't even think about it. We put all our hope in the fact that our circumstances are going to change. There are some of you, and you're going, if I, if I could just get out of that marriage, that, that person who mistreats me, if I could just get out of that marriage, everything's going to be better. And you don't realize that's not the answer. You're thinking right now, if I could, if, if, that, if that boss of mine would just leave or die, whatever, just go away, I can get a new boss, or better yet, make me the boss, that'll be great. Just change my circumstances at work and everything will finally be better. If I could just get over this health issue that I'm going through right now, and if I could just make it to the other side of it, then things will be better. If I could just, and whatever it is, you fill in the blank, whatever that circumstance changes that you're putting all your hope in, it is such a dangerous thing to put all your hope in a change of circumstance because when that circumstance doesn't change, all it leads to is despair. You may be there right now. There are some of you here, I prayed that God would bring you here this morning, and you're here this morning, and you've been putting all your hope in that, the fact that your circumstances would change, and they haven't changed, and you feel broken. You're despairing right now. Let me tell you, there's some really good news. When you finally start groaning, that's when God starts moving. That's what you learn. You learn that in verses 24 and 25. These are probably two of the most important verses in the entire book of Exodus, and we flip right over. We rarely see them, but there are, there are two verses that give us four characteristics of God. If you look back at verses 24 and 25, it says four verbs. It says, and, and God heard their groanings. Then it says, and God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This has given you four characteristics of God that are incredibly important. He is a God who hears, a God who remembers, a God who sees, and a God who knows. These four verbs tell you more about God than whole other books of the Bible. If you just stop and think about these verses. And these four verbs are things that we so misunderstand. If I were being honest with you, one of the chief problems we have in the church today is people who are ignorant of who our God really is. We've, we've concocted this idea of who God is in our heads because it suits us. But we need to know who God really is. There, there's a, a gentleman, his name is J.I. Packer. He's actually a remarkable thinker, and he's written a number of books, but he has this quote, I think, that really speaks to this issue, our, our ignorance of God. He says, ignorance of God lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. Churchmen who look at God, so to speak, through the wrong end of the telescope, so reducing him to pygmy proportions, cannot hope to end up as more than pygmy Christians. 
But just imagine the imagery that, that Dr. Packer's given. You flip the telescope and you're looking through the wrong way. And instead of God feeling close and big, God feels small and far away. And we have this wrong view of God. And when God feels small, we think he can't handle our problems. And when God feels far away, we think he doesn't care. But listen, our view of God affects our faith in God. If we view God as distant and small, we will not live by faith in a God like that. And our ignorance of who God is makes us function in a debilitating way in our faith. And these two verses that give us those four, four verbs tell us who God really is. I want to take them one by one. I want to make sure you understand. The very first one, it says, God heard their groanings. We have a God who hears. I want you to know, this is probably for me one of the hardest things sometimes to accept when I feel like I'm praying and God's not moving. And I wonder, God, can you hear me? God, is this just bouncing off the ceiling or can you hear me? And what this tells us about our God is he is a God who 100% of the time hears. He hears your prayers. But let me tell you something even better. He hears your groanings, it says. He heard the groanings of the people of God. Let me, let me tell you what a groan is. A groan is, there's no eloquence in a groan. There's no profound theology in a groan. It's a sound you make from the depth of your soul. And it says that God hears your groans in response. Let me tell you what, that's good news. It means you don't have to be really good at this whole prayer thing. You don't have to go to seminary to get the right words to pray. You just groan to the Lord and he hears you. It makes me think of, of Romans chapter 8. Verse, verse, what is that, 26, where it says that sometimes we don't know how to pray. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. You just groan to the Lord and he hears it. Why? It's something I taught you back in the Jesus series if you were here for that. It's not the quality of our prayer that matters. It's the quality of the one to whom we pray that matters. And we pray to an infinite God. And even if it's just a groan, he hears us. What a beautiful promise. You can come to him with all your insecurities and all your inabilities and you can groan and he moves. Why? Because of the second attribute of God. It says he's a God who remembers. It says he remembered his covenant with his people. Now, I want to make sure you don't misunderstand God because it sounds like when you read just in English, oh, he must have forgotten. Like, oh, God's going, oh, silly me. I forgot I made promises to the people of God. But that, that's not what the Hebrew is. That's not the idea behind it when it says that he remembered. The Hebrew word there, it means it was brought to his mind the call to his attention. It's the idea of it sparked his action. God didn't forget. I told you this two weeks ago. God is a promise keeper. He always keeps his promises. He has never failed on any of his promises. He will always keep them. But God also, he takes our groanings and he brings it to the forefront of his mind. He responds to our groanings to come to action. He enacts his covenant promises. And, and I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm a, I, I need a doctorate maybe in order to understand this. But I don't know why it works that God responds to our groanings, why that initiates his action when he's perfect. I just know the scriptures tell us that again and again and again. It's why we pray. Not because God doesn't know what to do, but because he calls us to join him in it. And when you groan, God moves. It, it sparks a remembrance of his covenant promises to action. And so if you're here today or you're watching online, wherever you're hearing this and you're groaning inside, you're overwhelmed and desperate, praise God because you're at the place where you're about to spark the very imagination of God to move on your behalf because we have a God who remembers. But we also have a God who sees. That was that third verb. It says in verse 25, and God saw his people. Now, I want you to know, I think this is an area 
where we have messed up severely, mainly because of our parenting. And we view the fact that God sees us as a bad thing. And, and, and you could imagine, maybe you grew up under a parent like this, maybe you are a parent like this, where you say to your kids, now you better, you better not do it. You know, God's watching you. And what we mean is he's going to catch you doing wrong. God's watching you. And so we, we get instilled inside of us this idea that if God watching us is true, then that's a bad thing because he's just waiting to catch us doing wrong. God sees and we're like, oh, dang, I don't want him to see what I'm doing. Like God's ready to smite us. But let, let me go ahead and tell you what the scriptures actually teach. You may want to write down this, this Bible reference. It would be a good one for you to go back and look at. It's, it's 2 Corinthians 16.9. And it says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. The eyes of the Lord move throughout the earth, not so he can catch people doing wrong, but so he can catch people doing right, so he can bless them and support them and love them. The fact that God sees is a promise that he's saying, I see every good deed you've ever done. You know that time you were kind to that person that wasn't kind to you? I saw it. You know that time that you were, you were generous to somebody else and no one else knew it was you? I saw it. Remember that time that you went out of your way to serve? I saw it. God is a God who sees. He sees when we serve him and love him and respond to him. And he blesses us because that's the kind of God we have. He's a God who sees. But probably the, the most important is the fourth one. He's a God who knows. Verse 25 says, and God saw his people and God knew. Now, if you're reading the ESV, it's, it's very ambiguous. And God knew, and you're kind of waiting, dot, 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 fill in the blank. God knew what? God knew their problems. God knew about Pharaoh. God, what, what did God know? In, in English, when you write someone knew, that is usually something you put in afterward to describe what they, what they know. But if you were to go look at the Hebrew text, it says, Elohim yada, it's Elohim is the name for God, and yada is a verb to know. God knew, that's it. Nothing else to it. And I think there's a reason why it's written this way. It's, it's reminding us that God knows everything. There's nothing you can put after that that will be sufficient. And God knew, period, because he knew everything. He knew exactly what they were going through. Later on in the passage, you're going to see him talk about how God knew their sufferings. But let me tell you what God also knew. God knew exactly what they needed better than they knew what they needed. If you were to poll the Israelites that day at their groaning, they would have told you, you know what we need? We need a new Pharaoh who won't oppress us so much. Or we need to be set free and not be slaves and just live free in the land of Egypt. Or at least lighten the load a little bit. That's what we need. We, needed to, we need a little bit less work to have to do so we can have a little bit more rest. But God knew they needed something so much greater than that. God knew they needed a promised land. They needed a land flowing with milk and honey. God knew they needed to be taken out of Egypt and made into his own people. God had so much more promised for them. But they didn't know it. God did. When it says God knew, it meant God knew what they really needed. I want to go ahead and pause right here. And I'm going to tell you, God knows what you need when you don't know. Some of the times while we get frustrated with God and we say, God, are you, do you even care? Are you listening? It's because he knows that if he were to give you what you asked for, it would be the worst thing for you. Have any of you ever seen Bruce Almighty, that movie before, where he's like, reply all yes to all prayer requests on the computer. And then like, Hades breaks loose on earth. Because if everybody got what they wanted, we, we would destroy ourselves. This is true before Almighty God. He knows what we need. We think we know what we need. He knows so much more than we do. Why? Because God knows. But probably the most important part of all, 
is that God knows not just what we need. He knows when we need it. God's timing is absolutely perfect. Let me tell you why that matters. The gap between when you ask for something and when God delivers in his perfect timing, that gap is when we most cry out, oh God, do you care? Do you hear me? Do you see me? Do you, do you, are you going to do anything for me, God? Do you care? It's not because God doesn't care. It's because he knows you're not ready for him to deliver the promise to you. His timing is perfect. He never misses on his timing. He has never been too slow to come in. He's never come too quickly. His timing is perfect. It makes me think of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, God is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient with you because he doesn't want any to perish but all to come to repentance. God is not slow. He is going to deliver his promises, and it's going to be at the perfect time. He's just being patient, waiting for the right moment. You see, the Israelites, they were growing impatient. And they were saying, God, how, how long must we suffer? God, how long are we going to be oppressed? God, do you even care? Do you hear us? When are you going to do something? And what God knew is they weren't ready until they got to the breaking point. When that, that old Pharaoh was gone and the new Pharaoh came in and they realized that nothing was going to change, it wasn't going to be then that they were going to be desperate enough to do what God told them to do. Before that moment... His rescue would have been too early. They would have rejected him. They already did reject Moses when he tried to come to them and said, who made you prince and judge over us? They weren't ready. So God doesn't give them Moses yet. It's not because he doesn't care, but it's because his timing is perfect. And so now that they're at the breaking point, now that they're groaning, crying out to God, now is when God says, you're ready. And in chapter 3, we move on. We see that he calls Moses in this beautiful moment for him to be the rescuer. We're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 3. So let me read that verse with you, and then we'll move on. It says this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Okay, now I'm, I'm going to pause there for a moment because I need to set the stage here for the burning bush that's coming next. So you have now Moses. It doesn't tell you this right now, but you'll discover lady, later that he's 80 years old at this moment now, and he's, he's been wandering around in the wilderness of, of Midian for 40 years. He was 40 years in the household of Pharaoh in Egypt, living in the lap of luxury. And now 40 years later, he's in the middle of nowhere, tending a bunch of smelly sheep, which for an Egyptian is the most demeaning, degrading job you could possibly imagine. He went from being a somebody, like somebody that everybody talked about, part of the royal family, to being in complete and total obscurity. Nobody even knew his name. Famous to forgotten like that. 40 years of this now. He's 80 years old, and he's doing the lowest thing you can imagine. And at this moment, he feels like his life is over. He's washed up. It's done. There's nothing he's ever going to do that's great. If there was anybody in the history of the world who ever felt forgotten, unseen, unheard, and uncared about, it's this man Moses in the middle of the wilderness, 80 years old. He has no clue that his days of life are just about to begin because he's about to encounter his God. And so we keep on reading verses 2 through 6. Listen to what it says. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. 
take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, I, I want you to understand what's going on here because you're seeing a profound metamorphosis. So you have Moses at the beginning, and he sees this incredible sight. There's a bush, and it's on fire, but it's not burning. And Moses is just drawn to it. It's like a gravitational pull. He just has to see it. There's, there's actually something really pretty funny over here. It says that Moses says out loud, I need to go see what this great sight is. But Moses is all alone right now, herding a bunch of sheep. There's nobody to talk to. And he, he's like presumably looking at one of the sheep going, I must turn aside to see what great sight this is. And it, it makes me think of the, the movie Castaway when you got like Wilson, you know, the volleyball, and he's just talking to Wilson. This is Moses. Like he's lost his marbles. He's at 40 years out in the middle of nowhere. He's talking to his sheep. I must turn aside and see what great sight this is. And he goes over and he looks at this bush. And as he's coming into it, he has no clue who he's about to meet. But you see him at the beginning drawn to it like a magnet. But by the end of this episode, he won't even look at it. He hides his face in fear. So there's this incredible transformation in just these few verses. And there's one thing that transformed him. He met Almighty God for the very first time. That's the only thing that changed. He met God and he could not stay the same. I think it's interesting. I had never considered this fact before until I was studying this passage of Scripture. But up until this point, Moses knew very little about Yahweh God. What you have to remember about him is he was trained in Egypt. He grew up in the royal family. All of his schooling would have been about Egyptology. He would have studied his whole upbringing about the Egyptian gods, the pantheon of Egyptian gods. He would have been studying people like Iris and Osiris and Isis and Osiris and, and Raman, or is it Raman? No, it's not. Amun, that's what it is, right? My daughter, she loves it. Amun is a god. She says I'm saying it wrong. And Ra, I know that one. The, these Egyptian gods, many of you have heard of them before. These gods that were powerful and they were supposed to be the ones in control of the universe. He knew all about these Egyptian gods, but he had never in a day of his life studied about Yahweh God. Now he'd heard of them. Because he knew he was a Hebrew. He knew that there was this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he'd never met him, knew nothing about him. And for the first time in his life, he comes face to face with God. And you recognize he's so ignorant of God that God has to teach him how to respond to him. And so he says two things. He says, don't come any closer and take off your sandals. Now, when, he, when you take off sandals, it, Moses knew what that was. That was the ancient way of showing awe and respect. It meant that there's something sacred and holy here. I, I need to show reverence to this person I'm before. So he, he would take off his sandals as a sign of reverence. But the more important thing he says is don't, don't come any closer. So remember, Moses is being drawn in like a tractor beam, just drawing him to see that bush. And God says, stop. Because what Moses doesn't realize is that he's drawn to the holiness of God, but the holiness of God would kill him. You cannot be in the middle of a holy God when you are unholy without dying. And so God spares his life and says, don't, don't come any closer, Moses. Just take off your sandals. And for the first time ever, Moses realizes just how holy this God is, just how transcendent and majestic he is. And all he can do is hide his face, and he realizes, I, I dare not look upon this God because he realizes the majesty of God. Listen, I don't know where you are, but there are some of you who've probably treated God way too flippantly in your life. 
And maybe today's the day where you begin to recognize the majesty of God. Maybe you're in a room full of people who are praising the king and you're going, holy cow, these people really believe in this God. There's something to this God. I feel this God in this room and I don't know what to do with it, but you recognize he's holy and majestic. That's the starting place. But that's not all there is to God. You see, Moses is discovering who God is. And he realizes for the first time just how majestic God is. But he doesn't know what you and I already know. And we've already heard that he's a God who hears us and sees us and cares about us and knows. Moses doesn't know that, but God's about to teach him as we move on in the passage. Look at verses 7 through 9. Listen to the lesson God gives Moses about himself. Verse 7, it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression which with the, which with the Egyptians oppressed them. So you, you see the, the language of it. I mean, listen to it. This is, this is important. Back in verse 7, he says, I've seen their afflictions. He says, I've heard their cry. It says, I know their sufferings. The exact same verbs are used again. See, hear, know. And what God is doing, he's teaching Moses who he is. Now, this is utterly mind-blowing for Moses because he has never in all his years of schooling heard of a God like this, a God who is majestic and transcendent and yet a God who is close and who cares. Theology words are transcendent and imminent, a God who is way above us, and yet a God who is innocent around us, a God who cares. This is incredible that there is a God like this. There is a God right now who has all the power in the universe, who knows absolutely everything, and he knows you, and he cares about you, and he hears you when you pray, and he wants to bless you and to give promises to you. There is no other God in the world like this God that we serve. And Moses came face to face with him this day. And at this moment now, he's discovered who his God is. And I'm sure he's blown away. And he's going, all right, baby, we're going to get to go to a new land. This God is about to do something. I can't wait to see what it is. And he has no idea that God's great plan is calling Moses to go. And it's about to freak Moses out. Keep on reading. Verses 10 and 11. God says to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You could hear Moses going like, whoa, slow down there, Paco. I don't know what you're talking about. But you got the wrong guy. God says, I'm sending you, Moses. You're my plan. And Moses says, uh, just a quick question, Lord. Just want to ask you, like, you do know who I am, right? You want me to go deliver the nation of Israel when the first time I tried to help them, they said, who made you prince and judge over us? And they kicked me out. You remember that, right, God? Oh, you want me to go talk to Pharaoh, but remember, it was his daddy who tried to kill me. You remember that, right? You want me to go liberate them, but I've been living out in the fields talking to sheep for the last 40 years. You've got the wrong guy, God. I can't do it. He says, who am I to do this? I want you to know that question right there, who am I? That's the real question every human being asks. It's a question of identity. Who am I? And every one of us in this room from time to time struggle with questions of identity. We want to know, am I loved? 
Am I seen? Does anybody think I matter? Some of you struggle on, on both sides of the spectrum. Some of you have way too much confidence. Way, way, think way too highly of yourself. You go, I'm, I'm God's gift to humanity. But I'll be honest, that's, those people are rare. Praise God. <laughs> the vast majority of people struggle way more with the other side. And we wonder, does anybody even care? And we fear, if anybody even knew who I was, if they really knew who I was, they would, they would walk away from me so quickly. If they really knew my heart, if they really knew my failures, if they really knew my story, they would, they would ditch me in a heartbeat. There are some of you right now, and you've bought into so many lies. I'm never going to amount to anything. I'm never going to accomplish anything. The chief lie of all, and I know there are some of you in this room right now, and you are wrestling with it. I don't even know if this world would miss me if I wasn't here. I don't even know if this world would be better off for me just not to be on the planet any longer. Every Sunday, there are people who come in here who wonder if their life is worth living. I know it because I pray with a lot of people at the end of services who confess I'm struggling right now with thoughts of self-harm. It all stems back from a question of identity. Who am I? Does anybody care? God, do you care? Does anybody want me? This is Moses. He's saying, who am I? I can't do this. There's nothing good I can bring. Who am I? I want you, especially if that's you here this morning, I want you to hear God's answer because it is profound. But what's profound about his answer is just as much what he doesn't say as what he does say. Let's read the last verse we're going to look at today, verse 12. It says, and God said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He says, let me answer your question of who you are. I'm going to be with you, period. He says, yeah, I, I, you'll, you'll see it one day. You'll realize that I'm telling you the truth. When you come back to this mountain, once you've been liberated from Egypt, you see all my power, you'll be right back here on this mountain. So trust me, the time's coming. But right now, here's all you need to know, Moses. You want to know who you are? I'm with you. It almost doesn't even make sense. I mean, you would expect God at this moment to give Moses a pep talk. Like, let me, let me point out your finer qualities, Moses. No, don't be hard on yourself, Moses. Man, you're so fit for this job. He could have said, Moses, listen, Brother, who better to go to Pharaoh than the one who grew up in Pharaoh's court? I mean, you are fully bilingual. You understand Egyptology. You've been trained in those ways. I mean, you are perfect for this, Moses. He didn't say that at all. He could have. He didn't say one bit of that. He could have said, remember that calling you have in your life? You're always trying to fight injustice, Moses. Remember how you're always standing up for those who need to be rescued? I mean, look, at you're perfect for this, Moses. You have a heartbeat for it. He could have said that. He didn't say that. He could have said, Moses, the last 40 years you have been in training. You've been shepherding sheep, but it's because I want you to be the shepherd of my people. I mean, who better equipped to shepherd my people than a guy who's been shepherding for 40 years? Moses, step up. You can do it. He didn't tell him that at all. He didn't speak at all to his character, his training, his calling, none of it. He says one thing, I'm with you, and that's all you need. But here's what I want you to hear about this. The moment he answers the identity question with a presence answer, he is redefining Moses' identity. He's saying, Moses, let me tell you who you are. You want to know who you are? You're the one who has God with you. That's who you are. 
And it doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what you're up against. When you have me with you, you got all you need. Romans 8.31 says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Later on it says there's no condemnation. We're more than conquerors. Why? Because we are the people who are defined by God with us. We're the people who say it doesn't matter how many failures I've made. It doesn't matter how many things I've screwed up. It doesn't matter how low I feel in this moment. I'm the one who has God with me and I'm going to be okay. That's the promises we have in Almighty God. And what I want to tell you today is you want to know what gives you identity? God himself dwelling inside of you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit of God if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You have God in you. That's who you are. So you look in the mirror. Yeah, brother, that's right. You preach it. I'm preaching it. You look in the mirror, and here's what you say. You say, guy, or if you're a girl, you can say, girl, girl. You're the person who's got God in you. That's what you say. Every morning you wake up, you look in that mirror, and you say, you're the person who's got God in you. That's who you are. You change your identity from what you used to be to who you now are. You're the person who's got God in you. But let me, let me make this really clear. That is only for those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ. There is one of the biggest lies from the pit of hell. And that lie is that we're all God's children. We all have God in us because God created us. Which, absolutely true, God created every single person, male and female, all the beautiful colors and spectrum and cultures. Everybody has value because they bear the image of God. But let me tell you something that Scripture teaches us about God. God is holy, supremely holy. Moses had to learn it. And if you try to come unholy into the holy presence of God, you will die. Unholy God or unholy man cannot have holy God dwell in them, otherwise God would be defiled. So as long as we have unholiness, God will not be in us. You become a child of God by being adopted into his family. You aren't born a child of God. You're born an image bearer of God, created by God, but you're adopted into his family. And there's only one way that can happen. Your sins have to be dealt with. Because the really, really bad news is Scripture tells us every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us does wrong. There's no one who does right, no one who's good, no one who understands, not even one person. We've all sinned, which means we're all unholy, which means none of us can have the holy presence of God were it not for the really, really, really good news. This is why the gospel is so important. The gospel is a message that God knew we would never be reconciled. He could never be with us. And therefore, just like God came to Moses, he came to us, and he said to his own son, here's what we're going to do. You're going to go down. You're going to live a holy life so that you can pass your holiness on to my people and then you're going to go to a cross and you're going to die on the cross. You're going to be murdered and placed on the cross so that I can put all their sin upon you. And you can be rid of all your sin, of their sin. And then when you raise up from the dead, they're going to understand that they can put their faith in you and they'll be washed clean and they'll become holy. And in that moment, the very spirit of Christ can come inside of us because we are holy vessels because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And every single one of us who believes in that message can come to a point where we say, God, now here's who I am. I'm the one who has God inside of me because of what Jesus Christ has done. And I don't have to be holy like Moses because Jesus, his whole name, remember the Christmas story, is Emmanuel, God with us. And when I place my faith in Christ, I have God with me. The spirit of Christ inside of me crying out, Abba, Father, and I'm adopted child of God. But it comes through faith in Christ Jesus. That's where you get a brand new identity.
Listen, I believe there are some of you right now in this room, and you're about to have a burning bush moment. You're about to have a moment where God radically changes your understanding of who he is and who you are. There are some of you discovering for the first time that you have a God who sees you, a God who hears you, a God who knows you, a God who cares about you. But you also have an infinitely holy God. And you have to come together with these two things, and they can only be reconciled in the cross, where you look at yourself and you realize, who am I? Yes, I'm broken. I'm a failure. I'm a sinner. But I'm also redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ if I just put my faith in him. And I go from who I was to who I will be when I place my faith in him. And the old me dies and is buried and gone, never to show his face again. And there's a brand new me that can look in the mirror and say, you're the one who has God inside you. That's who you are. Some of you desperately need that today. Here's what I want you to hear. God sees you. He's looking to bless you. He knows who you are. You're not forgotten in this crowd in this room. You're not forgotten online right now when you're watching. He sees you. God hears you. He hears your groanings. He hears your desperation. He hears you when you don't even know what to say, but you just try. He hears you. God knows. God knows your suffering, but he knows what you need, and he knows when to give it to you. For some of you, that, that win is today. He just wants you to respond. Listen, you don't have to trudge through this life wondering if God is for you. God is for you. But he wants you to cry out. He wants you to groan. And I think it's time for us to respond to that. So in a moment, I'm going to give us a chance to respond to the message of God's word. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to move if you need to do so today. There are some of you, I believe, that are at a point where you're saying, God, I need you. I need you to move in my heart and in my mind. I, I need you to show me your grace and your power. You're going to groan. You're going to cry out to God. And maybe you need help. We're going to have pastors who are down front who are ready to receive you and to cry out to God on your behalf, believing we have a God who hears and a God who sees and a God who cares. And today may be the day where you exercise faith to say, I'm going to go forward. I've seen it before. People go forward for prayer. I've never gone, but today's the day I need it. I'm ready to go. I need to be prayed over. Or maybe you just need to get down on your knees at these steps and you just need to groan. You don't need to say anything. You don't need anybody to say anything over. You just need to get down on your knees and groan to God and know that he hears you. And he's, he remembers you when you groan to him. Maybe you just need to pray by yourself. That'll be open to you as well. But the most important, I believe there are some of you who are here today. And today's the day where you need to say, I'm ready to have a new life. I'm ready for the old me to be buried and gone. I'm so tired of feeling so low, feeling so forgotten, feeling so ashamed. I want all that stuff washed away. And today will be the day where you need to step into this baptistry and you need to say, I'm ready for new life. I'm ready to be resurrected. I'm ready to have a new identity. I'm ready to be in Christ and to say, Christ is in me. Listen, we got counselors who will meet with you to make sure you understand the gospel. We have shirts and shorts you can change into to be ready. And today can be the day where it is brand new for you. He hears you and he sees you and he wants more for you. But you got to step out in faith. And I want to give you that chance. So I want to invite you to stand up. Some of you will just be singing, reminding yourself that God is enough. Others of you will be responding in prayer, making a decision. So as the pastors make their way forward, as we get ready, you respond as you need to. If you need to bow down on your knees, if you need to pray with one of us, if you need to tell us you're ready to be baptized, today's the day you respond.